Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of New Books in Politics. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes store or any of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Are you an academic who wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on how to use your intellectual authority to do so at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You'll find the link below. And now, on to this week's episode. My guest today is Sir John Redwood, Conservative MP for Wokingham in the UK, first elected in 1987. He was formerly Secretary of of State for Wales in John Major's cabinet and twice a candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party in the 1990s. He is also a distinguished fellow of All Souls Oxford and the author of 23 books by my count on Amazon's list on a whole range of subjects from atheism and early modern British history to 21st, 21st century economics to politics and government. He's all, he always has very insightful and often bold things to say on all these topics. We'll be discussing his latest book, We Don't Believe You, Why Populists and the Establishment See the World Differently. Welcome, Sir John. Thank you very much. Uh, so how are things with you right now during this lockdown and quarantine period? Well, they're very sad for the world, aren't they? Um, nobody wants this mm-hmm. disease to spread as quickly as it is. Uh, we're patiently waiting in the hope that our great scientists and doctors can come up with cures or palliatives or vaccines. In the meantime, the world is just trying to stop spreading it around so quickly. That will mean a very major recession occurring in most of the countries around the world. You cannot lock down very large sections of your economy without there being a very large economic cost. The only good news amongst bad news is that the big central banks and the main governments of the world are working together and they are putting a lot into it. They understand the enormous shock which is coming to our economies, to businesses, to small business people, to those who work for themselves, to those who might lose their jobs in the affected sectors. They are desperately throwing everything at it. They're creating money. They're supporting markets. Governments are proposing ways of keeping people going with some money direct from the state. And that is the good news, but there's still going to be a very nasty hit. Yes, I don't want to jump the gun in the book, but I do think that there are many ways in which this COVID-19 crisis can be illuminated by the analysis in your book. Do you agree? Well, indeed. I mean, what my book does is it looks at the growing gap between many of the public in democracies around the world and the elites that have been governing us for so long. Uh, There's been growing popular discontent with the treaty-based, internationally agreed-based rules and regulations that govern the world, uh, everything from the way the IMF conducts the monetary activities through the way the European Union uh, develops an austerity policy to try and keep the euro going through to some of the big environmental and health decisions made by world quangos. 
And there is a growing frustration by people in the electorates of many countries that it's not serving their interests, that we've had a decade or more now in the West since the bank banking crash of the last decade, when living standards haven't been rising very much, and in some countries are still below where they were uh, in 2008, and that somehow their interests are getting missed out in this great dash to globalization, to more integration internationally, and above all, to more globalization of government, so that increasingly national governments are the playthings of international treaties and international organizations. So we've seen in recent years, particularly on the continent of Europe, but not uniquely so, uh, a swing in voting patterns away from traditional centre-left, centre-right parties uh, towards a range of left, right and ill-defined radical parties that want to do something different, that want to challenge this consensus. Now we're seeing in this crisis uh, that those who say we need less globalisation are taking some comfort from the misery because they're saying if fewer people had travelled around the world on international jets, maybe this thing wouldn't have travelled around the world so quickly. If, if we were more dependent upon local food supplies and less dependent on imported food supplies, maybe we wouldn't have the same kind of supply interruptions we're seeing in some of the advanced countries today. If we had made more of our own decisions, maybe we would have kept ourselves safer. And these arguments are definitely going to come out of this crisis just as surely as they were there and dominating the political language and debate prior to the health crisis around the topic of how do you grow an economy faster? How do you let more people participate in the wealth and income that it's generating? Yes, I noticed you used the word radical just now, and I I want to use that to explore the question is, how do you specifically define populism? Because I know many people have, you know, different uh, definitions of it. How do you de define it? Well, I think populism is the development of challenger movements and challenger parties who say to the traditional establishment parties of centre-left and centre-right, you're not looking after our people, you're not looking after a large number of voters in the country, we want you to change policy, you refuse to change policy because you tell us you have to do this because of the international world order, so we are going to elect to the parliament or to the presidency of the country at someone who challenges these things for us and wants more local and national solutions and wants different answers. So I think um, I would regard a populist as being Donald Trump, who did it from within a conventional party. I'd certainly regard it as the Syriza government that took over in Greece when they were seeking to reject the austerity of the Euro scheme. You see it in a range of challenger parties in Spain, which now mean that none of the major parties are able to govern uh, individually and quite often can't even govern in coalition. You saw it uh, in the fact that the French presidency was last contested between the two final candidates who didn't either come from the main centre-left or the main centre-left or centre-right parties that have dominated French politics in the post-war period. They were both challenger candidates, although it now turns out that President Macron was rather more of an establishment international candidate than perhaps some of his voters realised. So you're seeing great swathes of political opinion changing. So you get the United Kingdom voting to leave the European Union, you get the Americans voting 
for a president who wants to put America first and is not so sure about the international alliances, treaties and arrangements he's inherited. And you see a whole series of challenger parties on the continent of Europe now saying we don't like the euro, we don't like the degree of integration, we're not even sure about all the features of the single market. Uh, we think maybe we need a different solution for Poland or a different solution for Hungary, uh, or in the case of the um, challengers in France from the right of the, the spectrum saying they want a French solution more than they want a European solution. Yeah, so, I, I mean, in the discourse and populism, uh, it's very often seen as a bad thing. I, I know you have a very you have a nuanced view, and you don't see it wholly as one or the other. But um, how how do you evaluate it? Because uh, you know, populism is is usually seen as a pejorative by many commentators. Yes, and I think that's a pity. I think it is a neutral word. Um, some populist parties have some very good ideas. Some populist parties have some very bad ideas. Some populist leaders speak for a genuine feeling that matters. Other populist leaders say rather nasty things that the rest of us don't like very much and, and seem to exploit um, certain instincts which, which are not going to help uh, create a, a well-balanced and integrated community. Uh, but I think you, you need to judge uh, each of them on their merits and you need to look at what is, is actually happening country by country. Uh, I think one of the interesting questions is, can a populist actually govern? Some people, I think, believe that populism is a device to garner more votes by promising to challenge the establishment and then getting into office and discovering that the establishment can't be changed after all. And some people would say that's what's been happening in France with Macron becoming a very establishment figure in many ways after he got elected. Um, whereas if you look at Trump, he is clearly trying to govern as a populist and he gets through an awful lot of advisors and supporters uh, in central government positions, or he did in the first couple of years because they assumed he would just calm down and accept the establishment views and he refused to do so. So you had an awful lot of tension at the top of the Trump administration. We'll see how easy or difficult it is for a populist in government in the United States of America to ride through this dreadful crisis, which is clearly not sideways, all the things he was trying to do because he was about lower taxes, more prosperity, more jobs, more take home pay for everybody. He was making good progress with all of that. And then suddenly along comes the virus and knocks away much of that because it's forcing people uh, into part-time work or no work and destroying incomes. And what's also interesting about this is that um, he um, he's sort of outflanking the left of the Democratic Party in a lot of ways because of his um, populism. He, he's not tied to traditional republicanism uh, in terms of, of what they define republicanism as in the United States. Um, and you know his his UBI proposals and uh, and his um, you know ordering of of banks not to foreclose. Not even Obama did that during the two thousand and eight um, housing crisis. Um, so it's it's very interesting um, that aspect. And I think you, that's a very interesting question you raise: Can a populist uh, govern? And th there's an uh, there's another sort of theoretical question I'd like to ask you about populism. 
But I find it very curious that um, the, some of the most vocal critics against populism are liberals. And um, to me, uh, I, I see um, populism as the logical end of democracy, really. Um, but what have you uh, noticed and, and ever commented on that contradiction between sort of, you know, liberalism and their strenuous critique of populism? Mm. Yes, it is a strange contradiction in, in certain liberals' positions because they're not liberal at all. Um, they should welcome the fact that populists are trying to be popular. What is the point of democratic politics? It is to develop a popular program and then make sure you can implement it. And if you can and it works, people will be grateful. If you can't, then they'll turn to somebody else who will come up with an alternative popular program. But we do have a group of people in what is now called the elite who believe very strongly in everything written into the rules of the European Union and the rules of the United Nations and various international treaties on everything from uh, trade through health uh, to defence. And they believe that governments should just follow those things. Uh, and they cannot understand that people in individual countries don't like all the results of those international treaties and want to elect governments the wish to change them or flex them or, or do something else. And so the liberals come over as very illiberal and they're left saying, well, the people were wrong to vote for this. You know, in the United Kingdom, the so-called liberal Democrats um, seem to deny both parts of, of that name uh, because they cannot accept that the British people voted to leave the European Union. And they just say, well, it's wrong and it will be damaging and therefore we mustn't do it. Whereas we Democrats say, well, we don't think it's wrong. But even if it were wrong, it is the will of the people and they'd affirmed it in a referendum and they went on to affirm, affirm it again in a general election where the Conservatives stood on the ticket of implementing the referendum and the other parties didn't and the Conservatives won a very big majority. Yes, I mean, it is very curious that the Liberals are the anti-democratic forces, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's very odd and I think it means they're, they're misdescribed. And you also notice mm -hmm. it in response to the virus, because the um, in order to respond to the virus, it's generally agreed by the advisors that we need to limit uh, very strictly human contact. And that does mean a lot of instructions as to how people are going to live and a lot of damage to people's livelihoods and to the economy. But if anybody raises the issue, is this a power too much for the government or is that really tolerable to do that in a free society? It's the so-called liberals who say, no, no, we want bigger controls, more controls, because they not only fully accept the scientific advice, but they just think that has to be followed through regardless. Yes, yes. I, and that's an important point you raise, that uh, the liberals are definitely misnamed. Uh, what do you think would be a more appropriate name for them? <clears throat> well, I think the, the statists or the establishment, because uh, they... Yeah, um, And I think quite a lot of them are very well intentioned and, and it is good if you can have an international order where things are resolved by discussion, not conflict. And it's good if you can have an international order where there is great expertise and that can be brought to bear to raise countries out of poverty and to keep people's um, bodies in good health and so forth. We all value expertise. But the danger of the liberal position is that they elevate a certain type of expertise or certain version of expertise even and take that into an absolute and say that everybody has to follow this 
even though it may be wrong, even though there may be a perfectly good alternative route. So they're narrower than just simply representing expertise. They represent a certain type of expertise that comes to a certain conclusion. And they always represent the expertise that comes to the conclusion that there is a, a world solution that we must all unite behind. And it usually entails a lot of government interference and regulation in our lives and quite often entails higher taxation. I mean, at the corner of the debate, indeed at the centre of the debate until the virus came along, uh, was the whole issue of our response to environmental and green issues. Now, I'm, I'm a very green sort of conservative and I'd like more trees and I'd like to look after our landscape and I want to breathe clean air and I want to see clean water running in our streams and rivers. But what the, the green movement itself has done is it's turned it into a, a big attempt to change our lifestyles very fundamentally. And it's saying we've got to change our cars and change our domestic heating system and we've got to pay much higher taxes and we've got to pay higher energy bills. Uh, and so they are seen now by the so-called populists uh, as going too far and, and attacking some of the things that uh, normal politics is about creating. We're about creating greater prosperity so that people can enjoy the freedom of personal transport and they can enjoy a, uh, a well air conditioned or, or a well, well warmed home, depending on the temperature and the season. Uh, and they feel that the Greens are going too far in demanding a new Puritanism. Because quite often what the liberal elite wants is a new kind of Puritanism. So what do people dislike about the Euro scheme on the continent of Europe? It's the austerity behind it. It's that budget deficits have to be very strictly controlled and state debt has to be rolled back because the taxpayers in the rich countries don't want to cross subsidize the, the poorer countries. And what some people don't like about the extremes of the green movement is, is this Puritan lecturing of everybody that you've got to change your lifestyle immediately. Otherwise, you're some kind of criminal against the planet. Yes, yes. and, and um, I, I think that's an excellent uh, characterization, uh, new Puritanism, uh, absolutely correct. And when you say it, it's, it's not just a flippant observation. I mean, you're a historian of religion and in uh, England from early modern times. And, and uh, in your book, it tells you, you, you compare um, populism to anti-clericalism in the past. Uh, that, I find that uh, very interesting. Can you expand a little on that? Well, indeed. I mean, the, the great revolutions that ripped through Europe of the 16th and 17th centuries were based around disagreements on religion. And it was an attack upon the then established church, the elite of the Catholic Church from the Pope downwards. It was an attack upon the priesthood. And people said, we don't want to have to have our religion in Latin and then interpreted for us by uh, a priestly class that can read Latin. And we can't. And we don't want everything to be settled for us by the priests about how we live and what we do. We want direct access to the Bible. We want access to the Bible in our own language. And whilst we're happy to listen to vicars and, and preachers, uh, we want our own ability to interpret and understand the word of God directly that, that is there in the scriptures for us. And this ripped apart constitutions, brought down governments and led to huge changes. With broadly speaking, the churches in the north of Europe being reorganized along Protestant or Puritan lines uh, and the churches in the south staying with the uh, the Catholic papacy with a more um, direct down approach to, to how people were governed. And it was quite noticeable. 
uh, that the countries of the north that went for the greater independence and freedom also then started to develop more economic success based on a parallel belief in freedom and free enterprise and individual ability uh, in what they were doing economically, leading to the rise of the very successful Dutch state in the 17th century, based on trading and enterprise, and then the rise of the British state uh, based upon world trade and manufacturers. And I, I see the anti-clericalism of the 16th and 17th centuries saying the priests aren't always right, or maybe the priests are wrong, maybe we need to interpret things more directly for ourselves, paralleled in a lot of these attacks that we've been seeing from the radical movements in Europe against the Euro scheme, saying this Euro scheme isn't as great as they made out, it's driving austerity, not prosperity. And then the attacks you're seeing on some of the, the science about environmental matters where people are either doubting the science or they're saying, we read the science in a different way. We, we think there is a global warming effect, but we, we don't think we have to take the action that the elite is recommending. So very similar kind of pressures. Yes, I think that's fascinating. And also, um, what's what's interesting is the twist, because um, the Puritans, in a sense, were the populists in the um, you know in in the early modern period, and now they're the establishment. But then they overdid it. Being reasonably popular, to then developing their own revolution, their own revolution got out of control. They took state control too far, which was, of course, a contradiction to many of the tenets of their religion and eventually led to the reintroduction of the crown in the United Kingdom, where the struggle was most intense. Yes, yes. And, and um, in addition to the Puritans, I suppose it's part of the ferment of the time. I, I guess the levelers, the diggers, the Luddites, the, these these groups um, uh, can be sort of the precursors to today's populists. Yes, you agree? I mean, they uh, got a long way with their democratic thinking, and they were very bold, and they went too far for mid-17th century England. And it took us a good many more decades before we got a universal male suffrage and even longer before we got a universal all-adult suffrage. But they started the ideas rolling, and we began that long journey to more people participating in their own government, which was a great journey. The triumph of democracy, which happened in Britain and elsewhere, and was then passed around to many more countries in the world. Um, would you consider yourself a populist? No, I'm, I'm neither populist nor elitist, I hope. I'm a commentator trying to see good in both sides, as well as pointing out some of the bad in both sides. And I really want to bring people together a bit more. I, I don't want um, big disputes between populists and elites. I, I want them to try and see that there are strengths in each other. It would be wrong with me to say I'm a pure populist because I, I'm clearly uh, part of the British establishment by the offices I've held. But I can't say I'm always at one with the establishment. Quite often I found myself in fundamental disagreement with the economic establishment in the United Kingdom over economic policy. Uh, and it, it's a, a rare occasion that I'm enjoying at the moment when I broadly agree with what the British government's trying to do economically. Right, that's that's interesting because I mean you've been a a veteran Eurosceptic when you know when when it was a very marginal 
and um, you know, outcast mm. opinion in in many ways. And you've seen the movement grow exponentially to become a a populist movement. Uh, do, do you have any reflections on that? Well, it took a bit longer than I thought it would. You see, I always believed in the wisdom of the British people. And I always felt that they had been missold something uh, in the 1970s when we joined what was then the European Economic Community. And it was true that I was on the losing side as a young man in that first referendum. We had a referendum on whether we should stay in something that Britain called the single market. I read the treaties and it, it didn't say we were in a single market. The Treaty of Rome, the main treaty that we'd signed up to, was talking about a progressive journey to ever closer union. And I believe they meant it, whereas we were told by our politicians arguing the stay in case. So this was just a trading arrangement. We were going to keep our sovereignty. Britain could always differentiate and make her own decisions if she wished. And then I watched uh, the next 30 or 40 years when we were taken on a journey to ever closer union, where we lost more and more power to make our own decisions. And just as I feared, uh, that journey took place, but it was not the journey that the British electorate had signed up to. And so all those in, in the elite of my country who wanted to stay in just kept saying to me, but you lost the referendum. And I said, yes. And for the first 20 years after that referendum, I accepted the verdict of the British people and went along with something called a sing the common market or a single market. But it's no longer that. It's grown massively. So we need to re-examine this proposition. And it did take us a bit longer to get that second vote. And I think it was so essential because what we voted on the second time was totally different from the arrangement they had described to us when the public had assented to it in 1975. Yes, that, I, that's um, very interesting because, I mean, what what is clear from your description of events and, and so forth is, is that you really are a Democrat who will accept the popular will, even when it goes against your your opinion, which is very much unlike the liberals of today. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and so you know you you accept this um, you know, uh, whether whether the the population are are pro establishment or, or at one point or. or um, anti-establishment as it is now. Um, and your book, now if, if we get um, more directly to your book, it asks the question, you know, why is the populist rebellion happening now? Uh, and I think, um, you know, this, your story that we just kind of went through really um, enriches your analysis uh, and so, so what was, just explain to the listeners, please, what uh, your basic argument is. Why is it happening now? Well, I think the populist and not revolt, 75. Uh, yes, I think the populist revolt is happening across Europe, not just in the United Kingdom now, because the rest of Europe has had quite a long experience of the euro, as well as all the other integrationist measures which did apply to the United Kingdom. And they haven't delivered that faster growth, that more prosperity, that greater number of jobs, which people wanted and expected. And so there is understandable disillusion across the south of the continent. There is mass youth unemployment, and it's been around for all too long. And people are saying, surely there is a better way. Do we have to stick to all these rules and guidelines and laws that the European Union has imposed upon us in the name of the single currency? In the United Kingdom, it was a sense that people have been cheated that they thought they were voting for a trading arrangement and they ended up uh, without the ability to govern themselves in, in so many fields. In the United States of America, 
Uh, I think it was the long hangover from the banking crash uh, and the fact that many people were suffering as they saw it from intense international competition. So they either lost their job completely or they stayed in a very low paid job and got no pay growth because the international market was so strongly competitive and Trump was able to play on those fears and concerns and show that uh, he thought there was a different way to proceed. And you can find similar uh, issues that Bolsonaro latched onto, for example, uh, and some of the other populist movements of Eastern Europe. Yes, yes. And, and um, uh, well, your book, uh, of course, focuses on, on the UK more, but yes, uh, but, but also Europe and, and the other movements there. It's, it's interesting the way um, that, you know, political identifiers and names and definitions are, are really upended by by this whole populist revolt and um you know there are left populists and and right populists um, do you think that they have uh much in common and do, do you think the left right distinction even makes sense anymore what's your sense and i think they have quite a bit in common uh, as you rightly pointed out recently um, mr trump has adopted quite a few things that you would associate with left-wing Democrats in terms of state spending and state intervention and um, ballooning the budget deficit. Uh, and you, you see on the continent of Europe, um, both left-wing and right-wing parties, so-called, challenging the same things, very worried about mass migration, um, very worried about lower wages, very worried about the rigours of the, the Euro scheme. And so it unites left and right in opposition uh, to the elite construct of the treaties. And that happens globally as well. It's the, the environmental movement is embedded and in, emboldened now by a series of very powerful international treaty commitments. And those are becoming contentious with people arguing both from the right and from the left about whether those controls are right and whether they're getting in the way of other programs to reduce poverty and to speed growth. Yes, it's also interesting the way um, in other countries outside of Europe and America, like India, like per the Philippines, perhaps, and and, and I, I suppose Russia, if, if if you consider it Eurasian instead of merely uh, European, um, that there's a similar uh, move towards. Uh, I don't know if populism is the exact correct word, but but definitely along those lines. And what, what it seems to be in your, if I understand the argument in your book correctly, it ultimately boils down to the failure of the so-called experts in so many areas of life, and particularly starting with the 2008 crash. Do, do I have that right? Absolutely right. I mean, the, the justification for experts is that their expertise should make things better, that they should give us understandings we otherwise don't have. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I, I admire great expertise, and there are many great experts, and if I want to be made better, I'll go to a doctor because he knows a lot more about how my body works than I do. But we also have been badly let down by expert opinion, most notably in economics, the subject I know most about, uh, where we've seen um, various crises, certainly in Europe, more than elsewhere. Uh, we not only had the great banking crash, which affected most of the West in 2007 to 9, 
But then that was followed by the euro crisis um, that had a couple of extremely difficult periods when it looked as if the, the banking system was uh, dangerously placed and the euro scheme wasn't delivering the money to the deficit countries it needed. And so it was causing extreme economic tensions and it resulted in the Greek blow up um, over Greek state debt. And in Cyprus, we even got to the point where people who deposited money in a separate bank account in euros couldn't withdraw euros to the same value as everybody else's euros because the banking system was too weak and the depositors were uh, forced to make a contribution. So we've seen um, really bad advice uh, on the banking crash. Um, they shouldn't have insisted on such a, a tough and sharp about turn in 0708, which brought banks down who could have been kept going if they'd uh, taken a different course of action. We then saw um, a very foolish set of self-inflicted wounds on the euro until Mr. Draghi realised he'd got to do something and try and rescue the situation. Uh, and that has led to an enormous disillusion with economics, as in many parts of the emerging world where uh, IMF World Bank solutions don't seem to deliver fast growth and prosperity in the way that people would want, and that causes tensions with the expertise of those international institutions. Yes, I mean, you, you wrote a book um, on the 2008 crash when it happened. I, I believe it was published in 2009, correct? Yes, indeed, because I was recommending a different and, and, way of handling it because I foresaw that we were going to have um, dreadful dislocation in banks and markets the way they were going. So I was shouting at them from my little pulpit, saying, for goodness sake, just create some more money, get interest rates down, make things more liquid and sort out the balance sheets a little bit later on. You can't force a solution to this as rapidly as you wish. But unfortunately, they did decide to try and force a rapid solution. And it meant taking quite a number of banks down. And that meant a very deep recession. I mean, in, in, in a kind of, you know, alternate history, uh, if, if your advice were followed in that book, do, do you think the populist uh, revolution, rebellion uh, would have been averted? Well, I wouldn't claim anything quite that grand, but I, I do think if some of my approaches, both to the European Union and to um, Western economies and banking, had been followed, we'd have had a smoother path and maybe therefore fewer people would have been really disgruntled with what happened. I and mean, I could scarcely believe that my own party, the Conservative Party, backed the entry of the United Kingdom into the European exchange rate mechanism um, in, the, in the 1980s. Uh, I wrote a pamphlet explaining the enormous damage this was likely to do. Um, they ignored all that. There were only a few of us who took that view. Unfortunately, it did do enormously economic damage. We had a boom bust, a nasty recession. And of course, it threw my party out of office for, for 13 years. And they only got back into office after Labour, the alternative, presided over an even bigger crash. Uh, and it was needless. It, it shouldn't have happened because it was eminently forecastable that would happen. And then with Labour in office from 97 to 2010, again, um, they allowed massive overexpansion of credit and banking activity. Many of us made that criticism. Indeed, all the official opposition parties in the United Kingdom made that criticism. They did nothing about it until very late on. And then they presided over the Bank of England and the Treasury uh, going far too hard against the banks and complaining about the banks. And that brought some of the banks down and made the deep recession inevitable. 
Yes, you know your your analysis here and and in your book, it's very it's really valuable in that you know the debates the populist debates are, are provoke so much um, passion and partisanship and and you really do take a, a balanced and rational approach and and looking at the pros and cons and all sides it's 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 very very valuable in that respect and and you go through you know a whole series of issues. Um, taking this model, basically, of of looking at at the uh, expert opinion and their recommendations, and and see um, how it failed, and then how it sort of fueled the the populist fire, and and you know it's austerity, the euro migration, global warming, etc. Um, you, you have a, a long list. What I, I'd like to go through, you know, some of your uh, arguments here. Like, for instance, um, with uh, migration, for example, C- can you just um, quickly go over, you know, the collapse of of the the expert view and 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 how populism was fueled in that particular issue, for example. Well, across Europe in particular, but it was also a factor in the United States of America with Mexico. The elite decided that it was a very good idea to invite in a lot of people to our countries and to offer their labor relatively cheaply uh, to keep wage rates down and to fuel the need of our uh, industry and services to recruit extra people. And you got a kind of growth out of that, but you you tended to get uh, overall growth, but you didn't necessarily get so much per capita growth because you were inviting in a lot of people to do Uh, rather poorly paid jobs, which don't score so well on productivity and output per head. And that model worked for a bit uh, as far as the elite was concerned, and they were doing very well out of it because they were in the well-paid jobs, organizing the cheap labor and taking advantage of the cheap labor to improve their lifestyles. But people who in our societies were competing with the cheaper labor coming in didn't find it nearly so comfortable, and we had this long period of little or no real wage growth and fierce competition for jobs. And so that built a political movement in different countries that was extremely worried about the speed of the intake. And the elite countered and said, but these people are rather nasty, they're racist. And the people said, no, we're not racist. We're we're, we're not saying it matters your, your ethnic background or where you came from. We're talking about any migration of people who come in and offer labor at cheap rates, it's bound to bid down wage rates and therefore make it more difficult to raise productivity and and to raise living standards. There are also issues about how quickly a country could absorb hundreds of thousands of people coming in because you clearly need to build a whole load of new houses because you want people to come in and have reasonable uh, housing, which you've got to help provide. You want them to access decent health facilities. You need them to have school places for their children. So there was the issue of how quickly can a Western state Uh, grow and adapt its public services and its housing provisions so that people can have decent standards when they are invited in. And you saw the the politics of that with the rise of the National Front in France, with um, the the Trump offer saying that he wished to um, have much stronger controls on the Mexican border with all that migration coming in from South America. and And you saw it in parts of the movement in the United Kingdom. It wasn't the central part of the vote leave campaign, but it was clearly part of the UKIP campaign uh, that they wished to see the United Kingdom take control of borders and reduce the numbers coming in. 
Yes, yes. And uh, a similar sort of um, thing happened in the, uh, well, you describe in, in the global warming debates as well. Um, do you want to, to explain yeah, like it uh, from your that. perspective? What's, what's happening there is that the, uh, the people who claim they're entirely basing everything they say on science are expecting people a lot poorer than them to make sacrifices they, they cannot afford. So it's fine for somebody on a big income to be told um, you must sell your diesel car and buy an electric car and your electric car may not have a huge range because uh, they're probably in a happy position where they can afford to, to buy a brand new, very expensive electric car. Uh, and they may be in a position where their longer journeys they, they pay for to, to go by some other means. And so uh, maybe the car is only a runabout in a city and so the um, narrow range of the vehicle doesn't matter to them. Whereas for somebody who... Um, finds it difficult to, to buy any kind of car, let alone a new car, the extra cost of the electric vehicle and the low range might make it rather difficult for them to carry out their daily lives and their daily business because they may need longer range and, and lower cost. And then we're going to have the same arguments over heating, where the rich will say, yes, well, all right, I can rip out my gas boiler and I can put in heat pumps and I, I can put in much higher insulation standards and that would be fine. Why doesn't everybody do it? And other people will say, yes, but I just don't have the money for that. And, and that isn't my priority at the moment. My, my priority is to, is to mend the fridge. I really haven't got the money uh, to completely change my heating system. And so there's this gap again between where the elite want people to be and where people can be and are genuinely in their daily lives. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, y you have... It, it's amazing. Um, I, I I really like the way in your book, the, the way you reasonably go about um, dissecting the the elite analysis, and 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 there there. Um, I mean, it it really is. I'm I'm trying to figure the, the right word for it. You know, it's 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 distressing. It's and and it's it's really you know, it, an argument in bad faith. The way they so often result resort to insult, you know, and and denigration. You know, when when you know you have all these issues with with valid points on either side, but but when you go against the elite, then you're a racist or you're a climate denier or, you know, um, whatever other name, the homophobe, you know, when it comes to identity politics. And where where do you think um, this this type of, of argument, where does it come from? What, what is it based on? It's, it's not liberalism. What is it based on? Well, it's based on a sense of inadequacy, isn't it? Uh, um, I think they do it because they don't have the, the scope and the ability to argue about um, the big issues that we're trying to engage them with. And I find that very disappointing because, as I say, I, I have quite a bit of the elite about me and my lifestyle. And, and I want to be part of an elite that is open and approachable and is serving the interests of the whole population. And when I see elite policies and elite treaties that are not working in people's favor, then I want to uh, criticize them and unpick them. But I do so wanting to build a new consensus, not wishing to be destructive. Whereas it seems that some people on the other side run out of arguments, facts and information very quickly and resort to abuse in a very unpleasant way. And I think it's one of the reasons uh, populist politics does so well, uh, because people aren't as stupid as some of the elites seem to think they are. 
And they recognize that if someone soon runs out of facts and arguments and turns to abusing the individual that's trying to have a rational conversation with them, there must be something wrong with their case. Yes, yes. And, and I mean, even when you get um, to this, to the more sort of hardcore communist type of left-wing people, and, and you get to communist regimes, I mean, dissent was seen as, you know, some sort of uh, psychological problem, right? I mean, in Maoist yes. regimes, in yeah, the Soviet lucky Union. Yeah, it was people to go to a mental asylum, and the unlucky ones were punished brutally. Uh, it wasn't yes, and, 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 and I remember those arguments years ago as a very young man. I started by counter-arguing communist propositions. And I used to end up just saying, well, if communism is so wonderful, why are you living in London and not going to live in Eastern Europe? Because the gap in living standards and lifestyle and freedoms was so huge between what we had in the West and what they had in Eastern Europe. Uh, and I was amazed that intelligent people in Western academies would say that the Eastern Europeans and the Russians had got it right uh, when they had to keep their people locked in with a big wall and they shot them if they dared to leave. Whereas anybody could leave the West and go and live in Eastern Europe if they chose to, but very few people chose to because they saw they'd be so much worse off. Yes, yes. And, and uh, I, it seems that, that there is a strain in left-wing thinking um, that, you know, whether it be liberal as we see, or so-called liberal that, that we see now, or, you know, hardcore socialist and communist, that, that really... Um, does not broach any sort of dissent and, and will label you as some sort of phobe or, or other. And, um, and that infects the, the discourse. You know, you, you are bringing a good faith discourse, and, um, but, you know, there's a section that they don't want to hear any argument whatsoever. No, and that's very sad because someone who believes that um, a great democracy thrives on um, vigorous debate uh, there have to be some limits to that debate and too much personal abuse and too much lying gets in the way of having an informed population and a decent debate. And there has been too much, much of that over some of these very passionate issues where I and others get abused when we're trying to take a moderate and sensible line. And I'm, I'm the first to admit if I get something wrong, I'm always very willing to listen to the other side of the argument don't know all the answers and sometimes people make extremely good points and then the right thing to do is to say yes that's a better point or I hadn't realized that and you incorporate it into your view of the world you don't just keep on shouting and slandering them that then they must be wrong because you're not they're, they're not saying what you're saying yes yeah now we we did start off uh, talking about the coronavirus um, matter and in the context of this but um uh, a couple of things that I think are important is um, one that, uh, let's say, the yellow vests in France, um, the protests are now being stopped because of the coronavirus. So the elite are, are, are I think, happy, at least in one sense, that they can control that, at, at least in France. And then on the other hand, I think that um, the, the establishment once again now is being tested. Um, it, you know, is this lockdown the correct thing to do? Um, are there models um, of the spread of the virus correct, etc.? Do you have any comment you'd like to make uh, in those areas? I think it's too early to make comment, and it's it's all too 
too intense at the moment. And I just wish the authorities in every country, every success in curbing and curing this thing, because we all want to see the death rate brought down, unnecessary deaths avoided. And we all, I think, regard dealing with too many deaths as the priority over economic damage that will be done uh, by the chosen way of handling it all. And we wish them every success. But I'm sure I'll be writing about this uh, in a year's time when I hope it will be behind us and looking exactly at these questions. Is this an example where the elite science got it right and the politicians interpreted that science correctly? Let's hope that is what one's able to say. But as you rightly suggest, this is another case where expertise is on trial. Now, um, medical science doesn't have a long history of big mistakes in the way that economics has done and the way I've catalogued. All I can do at the moment is try and help from the sidelines on the economics. And I've been setting out daily where we are economically, what damage this cure for the health problems is going to cause economically not suggesting that therefore we should change the chosen method of dealing with the health issue. I don't know the issues there. I just wish they succeed. Uh, but I can offer, offer advice on things that will ameliorate the economic damage being done. And that's what I've been doing. And I'm pleased to see some of those ideas are, are being taken up. And that is very welcome. My first prime recommendation in the United Kingdom was that given that a large amount of income and output was going to be destroyed by closures, the government had to inject money into individual pockets and into companies, keep things going. And above all, I, I was a keen advocate of the scheme they're now adopting uh, of paying money to businesses to keep their staff on when they've got no work to do for the time period of the closures. So that the companies are still there and the people still have most of their job income in the meantime paid for by the state. That seemed to me the best way to keep a bit of demand and income out there in the economy and to have some companies ready to spring into life once the closures end. So I'm very grateful that the government is doing just that. Yes, I, I think so. I, I, I agree with your um, proposals and analysis. And, and I also, um, you know, wish, you know, that our establishment and, and elites do um, get this right for all our sakes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about your, you know, historical argument here, because um, in in your, you know, chronicling of, of the populist revolt, you, you basically started with the 2008 crash, although, you know, there are antecedents all, all before, but it, but it reaches its intensity with the 2008 crash. And today, the coronavirus may, in fact, may be a bookend in a sense, because the elite may... If they get this right, um, they may redeem themselves. And um, what, what, what do you think? Will, will this sort of be a, a bookend and an end to, to the to the revolts, perhaps, if they do get it right? Well, if they got it right on both fronts, both medically and economically, then yes, they would deserve more support, and that would follow naturally. Because people, I think, are on the whole pretty wise judges of these things. But they've got to get both right. And I know more about the economics than I do about the, the medical side of it all. Uh, and we've got to make sure that this big response that United Kingdom, United States of America, to a lesser extent, the Europeans have come up with so far, is followed through and can be implemented. Um, because otherwise, we will see mass layoffs, high unemployment, and a very big reduction in, in output and incomes. 
Uh, and that will be very difficult for governments, even though it was done for the obvious, very good reason that it was trying to protect people's lives. So one can't be sure how that will work out politically. Um, so it is best to try and get both right. Uh, and uh, let us hope that if we get the medic medical side right, that there's still a nasty bump economically, which there might well be, um, that the public are understanding. And we'll have to see how that develops, but it's not guaranteed that they will be. Yes. And so I, I think that, you know, this is a major, major e event in in the, let's say, the trajectory of, of populism. Uh, the, where do you see it going in the next um, couple of years? Do, do you have well, any sort of um, idea? Well, I'm normally very willing to give, give a view, and I, I like to feel I've got a reasonable chance of being right on these things. I think it is too early to tell. I think I need to see another three months of this crisis unfolding, and then I'll be able to give a better considered view of what might happen next. Um, if all goes well and the medical and epidemiological advice works out and that in three or four months' time we're looking at restoring something more like normal, uh, then there will have been a victory. And as I said, I don't think there's ever been in recent years populist revolts against doctors. People on the whole are pretty happy with the great progress medicine has made with mass vaccinations and elimination of great killer diseases that stalked our, our countries 100 years ago. Uh, so medicine is in pretty good order and health services are in pretty good order. Um, and that will be a success, which will be very welcome. But we need to see also how big the economic damage is and whether these alleviation programs are rapid enough and big enough uh, to avoid a very major downturn. Uh, because if we not only had the big downturn we all expect in the second quarter, because uh, if you close around half your economy, there's going to be a very big impact. But if it lingered on for too long, then I think handling the economics and the politics of that is going to be more difficult. Absolutely. Well, what message would you like to leave your readers with um, with this with your book on populism? I think the message I'd like to leave them with is, um, I'm sure many of them share my view that democracy is still the best way of governing people. Uh, that we are still blessed in many Western countries with pretty vibrant democracies. And this impatience with what, what elites and treaties have served up for us is a very good democratic sign because those treaties and some of those elite views did need a challenge. It's very important that populism doesn't degenerate into nasty traits uh, and into being against all expertise and all knowledge because knowledge and expertise is a very good thing. Uh, which increases our prosperity and our freedoms when rightly used. So I'm broadly optimistic, although it's difficult against this immediate news background, that will pass. I'm optimistic because I think technology is great. I think there's still many innovations and inventions left in the human race which will improve our lifestyles. I think we can, once the crisis is over, grow our economies and make more people more prosperous. And I'm quite sure that democratic politics with the proper kind of civilized debate, the clash of opposites, the exposure of folly is the right way to go to get those better answers for more people. Excellent. Um, is there anything you're working on right now? Well, yes, I'm beginning to collect the information and, and the thoughts together 
on looking at the, the great coronavirus crisis, particularly its economic consequences. Uh, well, I, I look forward to that. I, I think I um, daily, your analysis... JohnRobertsDiary.com will give you a daily update on where I think we are on particularly the economics of the virus crisis. All right, johnredwoodsdiary.com. Excellent. Well, I, I want to thank you so much uh, for this very stimulating and enlightening discussion. I, I really think you're a valuable, very valuable voice in this whole debate on populism. And I, I highly recommend um, your book, We Don't Believe You, Why Populists and the Establishment See the World Differently. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. And it's available through Amazon, I believe. That's all for New Books in Politics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic that wants to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.